All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, podcast number 21. Me and My Machine, Three Textile Barons of Laurel Hill. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 90 minutes to learn about some interesting folks interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery who have amazing stories. While the textile industry in the United States started in New England, it did not take Philadelphia long to catch up and pass our northern neighbors. Three people who immigrated to Maniunk helped build what had been a small village into one of the major manufacturing centers of the country. Joseph Ripka was a draft dodger from Silesia who at his peak employed 2,000 men, women, and children in his mills, but he went out of business at the start of the Civil War. Seville Schofield came from England and took advantage of the Civil War to manufacture 365,000 blankets for the Union Army. Samuel Winpenny also came from England, but he declared bankruptcy before his 35th birthday. Several of his sons and grandsons were far more successful, but others were not and they still have interesting stories to tell. And I won't even have time to talk about Thomas Drake, another mill owner whose daughter, Charlotte Cardiza, was a survivor of the RMS Titanic sinking. I promise I will cover them in a future episode. Even if you know nothing about the textile business, I promise you will be informed and entertained for the next 90 minutes as I present All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 21, Me and My Machine, Three Textile Barons of Laurel Hill. I'm going to start by saying this turned out to be a bigger project than I anticipated. Usually I try to keep the podcast at about 60 minutes. I went way over that today. I will start the podcast today by talking about Philadelphia itself and its relation to the textile industry in general. That's going to take a little more than 30 minutes, maybe about 32 minutes. You might want to split this podcast into two parts, business first, family second. I promise you there is interesting stuff in both parts of this, though. I think that if you understand what is happening in the industry itself, the stories of the individuals will make a lot more sense, because I will use certain terms like power looms and throstle and roving that may not make any sense to you unless you hear the first part of the podcast. I will guarantee it is interesting and I hope you will find it informative. Then it's me and my machine for the rest of the morning. 
rest of the afternoon and the rest of my life. Almost from its beginning, Philadelphia has been a center for textile and garment workers. As early as 1691, William Penn wrote of very good German linen being made in Germantown. As the city grew, numerous workers took up spinning, weaving, and knitting, both in home businesses and in small shops. Women initially worked for their families or as seamstresses, like Betsy Ross. Journeyman tailors worked under master artisans. In pre-revolution days, you could find excellent linens from the Irish immigrants, mostly in the neighboring Kensington district, thread stockings in Germantown, and various woolen products. Now remember that when I talk about Kensington, Germantown, Maniunk, and other areas that we now think of as neighborhoods in Philadelphia, they did not become part of the city until the consolidation of 1854. They were independent boroughs, districts, and villages. In 1800, Philadelphia was the second largest city in the country after New York, but Northern Liberties was the sixth largest city. Southwark was the seventh. By 1830, Kensington was the 15th largest city in the country, and Spring Garden was 20th. The first Industrial Revolution started about 1760. It meant a move from hand production to machines, new chemical manufacturing and iron production processes, the increased use of steam and water power, the development of machine tools, and the rise of the mechanized factory system. The textile industry was the first to use modern production methods. Textiles were the dominant industry of the Industrial Revolution in terms of employment, value of output, and capital invested. Before the 1770s, textile production was a cottage industry using flax, wool, and sometimes cotton. Weaving was a family activity. The children and the women would break up and clean the disorganized fluff into long bundles. This is called carding. The women spinners would then spin these rough rovings into yarn wound on a spindle. Rovings are long, narrow bundles of fiber. The male weaver would use a frame loom to weave this into cloth. Now, the flying shuttle made the loom twice as productive, and with it, the demand for cotton yarn vastly exceeded what traditional spinners could supply. There are two types of spinning wheel. There's the simple wheel, which uses an intermittent process, and the more refined Saxony wheel, which drives a differential spindle and flyer with a heck. That's an apparatus that guides the thread to the reels in a continuous process. These two wheels became the starting point of technological development, and businessmen hired inventors to find more ways to increase the amount of yarn that was being spun. The spinning jenny allowed a group of eight spindles to be operated together. It mirrored the simple wheel. The rovings were clamped and a frame moved forward, stretching and thinning the roving. A wheel was rapidly turned as the frame was pushed back and the spindles rotated, twisting the rovings into yarn 
and collecting it on the spindles. The spinning jenny could be operated by hand, but it produced weak thread that could only be used for the weft part of the cloth. Because the side-to-side -side weft does not have to be stretched on a loom the way that the top-to-bottom warp is, it can generally be less strong. The throstle and later the water frame pulled the rovings through a set of attenuating rollers. Spinning at different speeds, these pulled the thread continuously while other parts twisted it as it wound onto the heavy spindles. This produced thread suitable for warp, but the multiple rollers required much more energy input and demanded that the device be driven by a water wheel. The early water frame, however, had only a single spindle. Combining ideas from these two systems, the water frame and the spinning jenny, inspired the spinning mule. The hand-operated mule was a breakthrough in yarn production, and the machines were copied by Samuel Slater, who founded the cotton industry in Rhode Island. Development over the next century and a half led to an automatic mule and to finer and stronger yarn. In the colonies, the first spinning machine was introduced in the 1770s in Philadelphia by Christopher Tully. In 1775, the United Company of Philadelphia for promoting American manufacturers used Tully's machine in a factory set up at 9th and High Street, which is now Market Street. The company employed nearly 400 local women in hand spinning and weaving to compete with English imports. One of its members, Samuel Wetherill, was a major supplier of cloth and other textiles to the Continental Army. The Wetherill family is quite well represented at Laurel Hill Cemetery by many generations. The Pennsylvania Society for the Encouragement and Manufacture of the Useful Arts, PSEMUA, was established in 1787 to encourage large-scale textile manufacturing. It used the same building where the United Company of Philadelphia had been in 1788. The Manufacturing Committee of the PSEMUA installed four large hand-driven jennies in the Market Street factory and introduced mechanized cotton spinning to Philadelphia. Although powered and operated by skilled human labor, the jenny increased the productivity of a single spinner several fold. These so-called multiplying wheels not only reduced the demand for the wheel spinner's linen yarn, but undercut the price of her hand-spun product by 25%. Two years later, the factory was burned to the ground, and it was not replaced. This would become a common theme. The machines invented to reduce labor and increase output would be attacked and burned many times through the Industrial Revolution. More about this in a couple of minutes. In 1791, English immigrant William Pollard was awarded the first U.S. patent for a machine for spinning and roving cotton. He secretly brought much of his technology from England, where the government authorities were trying to protect their industries from competition. England even passed laws that forbade workers with mechanical expertise to leave the country. Well, the early leader in industrialization of American textile industry was New England. The nation's first successful textile mill was established in 1793 in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. 
By the early 1800s, there were factories all over Massachusetts, Fall River, Lowell, Waltham, etc. Their system was different from Philadelphia's. A New England corporation would invest a half million dollars or more in erecting an integrated factory covering all aspects of textile making, power canals, housing for workers, etc. They were company towns. Because textile work was more fragmented than Philadelphia, with one shop doing the spinning and roving, another doing the weaving, yet another doing the dyeing, a fourth doing the cutting, a Philadelphia hopeful might actually be able to join a partnership for $1,000 or less. The cotton gin, short for engine, was invented by Eli Whitney in 1793, and it helped make cotton profitable for the U.S. South. The tedious process of picking out cotton seeds by hand had yielded about one pound of usable cotton daily. The gin enabled its producers to produce 50 pounds of usable cotton daily. Cotton soon replaced tobacco as the major cash crop in the South, and even more enslaved people were needed to keep everything going. Eventually, the United States produced 80% of all the cotton used in the world. Cotton would be spun to fiber, then made into fabric, and then used for garments. In 1820, the village of Maniunk, then known as Flat Rock, was part of Roxborough Township and had a population of 1,682. The inhabitants were wealthy millers and landholders, but also craftsmen, laborers, and farmers. Settlement was sparse. Charles Hagner, the second person to establish a mill along the canal, chronicled the early days of industrial Maniunk. When the navigation company commenced operations at Flat Rock, there were but 11 houses in the whole distance from Writer's Ferry to Flat Rock Bridge. The whole population, about 60 souls. As the construction of the Flat Rock Dam and the Maniunk Canal, with its upper and lower locks, neared completion, the Schuylkill Navigation Company, which controlled the river and canal system that ran 108 miles from Port Carbon to Philadelphia, began advertising the sale of water power. And when the dam was finished in 1819, it backed up the Schuylkill River for four miles and supplied a fall of 26 feet providing for the first time the power to turn water wheels on this portion of the river. Captain John Towers was the earliest purchaser of water power along the two-mile canal. He constructed a stone mill for cotton manufacturing near what is now the Green Lane Bridge. Hagner followed the next year with a mill where he, quote, commenced making oil and grinding drugs and shortly thereafter added a fulling mill, end quote. Fulling is a cleaning process to remove dirt, oils, and other impurities from cloth. Within 10 years, there were 10 mills along the canal and plans for the construction of six more. Maniunk provided a location away from the established textile regions of Philadelphia and Kensington and allowed the cotton manufacturers to more easily construct mills equipped with water-powered labor-saving devices, predominantly the spinning throstle and the power loom. The throstle provided continuous spinning, while the power loom was operated initially by water, later by steam and electricity. 
Away from the handloom weavers of Kensington, the new textile mills of Maniunk started the industrial revolution of the Philadelphia textile industry. Where did the workers come from? During the last two decades of the 18th century, about 5,000 passengers left Ulster annually for America, and the majority of the ships leaving Londonderry, Belfast, and Newry carried their human cargoes to Philadelphia and its satellite ports of Wilmington and Newcastle, Delaware. Many of these passengers were poor weavers and their families who, until the Restrictive Passenger Act of 1803, could board a ship bound for Philadelphia for as little as three pounds, ten shillings. Immigrants were abandoning old linen and wool-producing regions of Ireland and England, which had been hard hit by the introduction of the cotton spinning mills and by the glut of linen handloom weavers. Since Philadelphia was a popular immigrant destination, it had a large advantage over the New England textile industry. By 1820, Irish and English handloom weavers and mule spinners had turned Philadelphia into the major center of fine yarn and cloth production in the nation. The mule spinner was a step up from the Jenny, since it had up to 1,320 spindles and could be 150 feet long. Immigrant women and children disembarked in growing numbers in the 1820s and filled the demand for water-powered machine attendance in the mechanized cotton factories of Maniunk, which was now Philadelphia's counterpart to Lowell and Pawtucket. But mechanization also led to labor issues. The automated large mills eventually employed hundreds or even thousands of low-skilled or non-skilled laborers, most of them immigrants, men, women, and children, and most of whom did not speak English. Working conditions were miserable. Employees worked 12 to 14 hours daily for six days a week. The work was monotonous and dangerous, and the pay was low. A good male mule spinner could make up to $7 per week, but women made one-third to one-half of that, and children, some of them as young as eight or nine years old, made less than a dollar a day. The term sweatshop developed specifically to describe textile mills. Strikes were frequent and aggressive and often met with violence by mill owners and their hired thugs. Philadelphia's early industrial capitalists ironically stimulated some of the most violent forms of resistance to mechanization. The Luddite movement had emerged in England in 1811 as a secret society during the harsh economic climate of the Napoleonic Wars, which saw a rise of difficult working conditions in the new textile factories. Luddites objected primarily to this rising popularity of automated equipment, which threatened their jobs and their livelihood, since they could easily be replaced by cheaper and less skilled workers. The movement spread rapidly throughout England and eventually to the United States. As the technological innovations of the power loom reduced the earning power and market command of independent weavers, they attacked and burned the mills and machines of Maniunk's early industrialists. A series of machine-breaking and mill-burning incidents began soon after the first power loom factories were constructed on the Maniunk Canal in 1821. In 1823, fire destroyed two mills in Maniunk containing spinning machinery and power looms. 
a correspondent to the Democratic press, wrote, There is every reason to believe it is the work of an incendiary, end quote. Machinery of, quote, the most improved kind, end quote, worth nine to $10,000, was lost. Nowadays, the term Luddite is often used to describe someone who's opposed or resistant to new technologies. In the 1830s, John Winpenny's mills burned to the ground three times. More about him later. The Germantown Telegraph reported, quote, there can be no doubt that this fire was the work of an incendiary. End quote. By 1830, assaults on the factories of Maniunk had moved beyond surreptitious individual acts of arson. Now, bands of weavers with clubs, guns, torches, and kindling openly marched on Maniunk to destroy the power looms and the mills which housed them. By the summer of 1828, Maniunk was home for five large cotton mills with more factories under construction. In terms of the number of spindles, power looms, and hands employed, Maniunk was larger than Pawtucket. 525 hands attended 14,154 mule and throstle spindles and hundreds of power looms along the canal on the Schuylkill. By 1840, Maniunk's eight cotton mills, which represented 18% of all the mills in Philadelphia City and County, operated 44% of the spindles, contained 27% of the invested capital, and employed more than a quarter of all the county's textile operatives. Now, because of these poor labor conditions, several workers formed an early protective organization, the Taylor's Benevolent Society in 1827. They did manage to win some wage increases from their employers several times over the next few decades. But in November 1829, the Philadelphia Mechanics Free Press called the Mills of Maniunk, quote, a deplorable example of the oppressive and degrading effects of machinery on the productive classes, end quote. The working men's newspaper pointed to a system of child labor, a debilitating and dangerous work environment, and long hours of labor, the daybreak to dark night system. Concern that the factory system of labor was turning Pennsylvania's cotton mills into seats of immorality and discontent, the state Senate finally launched an investigation in early 1837. The testimony of witnesses appearing before the Senate Investigative Committee documented the social conditions of early mid-Atlantic industrial production. Witnesses from Maniunk and Philadelphia mills singled out the long work hours and the lack of uniformity in the workday among mills as the greatest evil of the factory system of labor. With no state regulation of the hours of labor, mill owners made individual and arbitrary adjustments to lengthen the average 12 and a half hour workday. They extended the end of winter working day, even to the witching hour of midnight. They cut into mealtime. They rang the work bell early to get more labor time from their operatives. The time of labor was often lengthened to make up for losses at other seasons due to short days, repair days, a dry season, or freshets, which could wash away water wheels and power shafts or ruin canal water levels. Yet the main cause of extended workdays seemed to be competition among the textile manufacturers. 
Mill owner Hagner, we've heard about him before, testified how owners vied to increase output. Quote, the additional labor of one hour in establishments where from one to 500 hands are employed is an important item and offers great temptations to the employer to overwork his hands, end quote. A machinist in a Fairmount factory also suggested that the practice in which some factories calculated by the calendar and some by the lunar months was designed by profit-conscious manufacturers to confuse families who contracted to work in the mills. They do not know what they have bargained for. They do not know how many hours make a working day or how many a week. Witnesses noted that the long hours of work particularly oppressed children. 35 to 45 percent of Philadelphia's mill labor force, like Rhode Island's, were children, and 7 to 10 percent were under 12 years of age. Workmen and doctors denounced the unremitting and confining labor of the children. Fatigued by the long, constant hours of stooping and standing, children would often fall asleep at their jobs and had to be struck or strapped to be kept awake. Combined with the long workday, the unhealthy atmosphere of the cotton mills and the dangerous conditions of machinery production produced disorders and diseases that made the early factory system a severe form of human labor. Endless hours of standing and stooping caused women and children operatives to suffer chronic headaches and swollen ankles. Overheated rooms and an atmosphere filled with a, quote, cloud of cotton dust, end quote, resulted in serious lung diseases. A particular type of bronchial inflammation that led to tuberculosis, known as Spinner's Thesis, that's P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S, was common in the cotton mills like Maniunks that had no ventilation systems. A Maniunk physician testified that he had treated many mill employees for tuberculosis of the lymphatic glands. He noted also that female workers' menstrual cycles would frequently cease or be prolonged by the physical and mental trauma of mill labor. Tending or working around the unceasing machines of the textile mills was also simply dangerous labor. Exposed gears and parts of machines frequently injured or killed children and adults. Charles Hagner himself had seen two children die when they were caught up in the mill machinery. And steam power and rail transportation allowed the industry to blossom even further. And machines kept improving as mechanical engineers and inventors developed even more devices that gradually replaced hand weaving and the home-based textile and garment industry. The foot-powered sewing machine was introduced in 1846, the mechanical cutting knife in 1876. Textile and garment family dynasties developed, the Fishers in Germantown, the Schofields and Dobsons in Maniunk and East Falls, the Ripkas in Maniunk and in Northeast Philadelphia, and many more. They became wealthy and powerful and they got involved in politics. Many of them were also immigrants and had never fully integrated to Philadelphia's social life, so they invented their own. Now, thousands and thousands of both Irish Catholics and Protestants settled into Kensington and became mill workers. Germans were also among the early immigrants, followed by Russians and other Eastern Europeans, as well as Italians. 
In fact, it was religious tensions between Kensington's Protestant and Catholic Irish mill workers which led to the deadly 1844 nativist riots. Bible classes were taught in the public school using the King James Version. Catholic parents requested that their children be allowed to use the Douay version, then approved by the Catholic Church, or to not attend Bible classes. The anti-Catholic nativists, or know-nothings, twisted this request into saying that the Catholics were trying to take the Bible out of public schools, and this started a riot. The Protestant rioters burned down the Nanny Goat Market, St. Michael's Church at 2nd and Jefferson Streets, along with its adjoining buildings, including the rectory, and a nunnery at 2nd and Thompson Street. They also put to the torch the Hibernia Hose Company on Cadwallader Street, which was a center of Irish Catholic resistance, and they burned about 60 Irish Catholic homes, stores, and businesses before they proceeded a little further to the edge of the city where they burnt down St. Augustine's Church at 4th and Vine. Many rioters on both sides were killed, and many Laurel Hill residents were involved, including Sheriff Morton McMichael and militia leader Robert Patterson. Then a few months later, in July of 1844, another nativist riot mob attacked the Church of St. Philip Neri in the Southwark district. This time, Catholics did none of the rioting. Fifteen people were killed, another 50 wounded. You will hear more about these 1844 nativist riots and the abolitionist riots of 1838 in a future podcast. By 1850, Philadelphia County had about 12,000 textile workers. By 1880, that number had reached more than 60,000 who were employed by nearly 1,000 different firms. More than 40% of the workforce in Philadelphia was involved in textile and garment work. Just in Kensington, there were 400 textile firms that employed 30,000. Along with New York and Boston, Philadelphia was one of the big three Irish-American cities in the 19th century. In 1860, about 25% of the populations of both New York City and Boston were Irish-born. The figure for Philadelphia was 17%. One out of every six people living in Philadelphia in 1860 had been born in Ireland. By the Civil War, Philadelphia was one of the nation's premier textile centers and garment centers. But those who were invested in cotton hit a low spot when the war started and their source for cotton from the South dried up. Several declared bankruptcy. Still, the textile industry was well diversified. Remember, unlike in New England, where one factory did everything from start to finish product, Philadelphia had some factories that spun both new and converted cotton, wool, and other products into textile fibers. Another factory wove the fibers to fabric. A third factory dyed the final fabric. And a fourth factory cut and sewed the finished product. So when the government urgently needed uniforms and blankets, Philadelphia was in a good position to supply them, and many owners got rich. And clothing was not the only end product. Far from it. Various factories produced carpets, cordage, which were large ropes used in shipping and industry, jute used to make burlap and gunny cloth, linen goods, nets and seines, shoddy, recycled or remanufactured wool, silk, worsted yarn or cloth made from wool, 
felt goods, and of course, fur felt hats from John B. Stetson and Company and his competitors. Now, while textile factories grew, the garment industry tended to stay in smaller units. It rarely employed more than 25 garment workers, unlike New York and New England. But after the Civil War, when Justice Clayton Strawbridge and Isaac Hallowell Clothier founded Strawbridge and Clothier and John Wanamaker opened his own department store, the need for ready-to-wear clothing took advantage of their upscale business for the war and could easily fill these bulk clothing orders. Many workers had a hard time making their voices heard with the bosses. And in 1869, Philadelphian Uriah Smith Stevens formed the Knights of Labor, initially as a secret society. But it grew into a massive international organization representing low-skilled workers, railroad workers, immigrants, and steel workers of all religions, races, and genders. At its peak in the mid-1880s, it had more than 700,000 members. The Knights' primary demand was for the eight-hour workday, but they also called for legislation to end child and convict labor, as well as a graduated income tax. Unfortunately, they suffered the political consequences of being associated with the deadly Haymarket riot in Chicago in 1886. The Knights of Labor probably deserve a podcast of their own. At the 1876 Centennial Exposition, local textile manufacturers noticed that Philadelphia's textile industry was falling behind its rivals' capacity, technology, and ability. So in 1880, they formed the Philadelphia Association of Manufacturers of Textile Fabrics with Theodore C. Search as its president. Search joined the board of directors of the Philadelphia Museum and School of Industrial Art, now the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the University of the Arts, thinking it the perfect partner for his plans for a school, and he began fundraising in 1882. And in early 1884, Search himself taught the first classes at the Philadelphia Textile School, which officially opened on November 5, 1884. In 1942, the Philadelphia Textile School was granted the right to award baccalaureate degrees and changed its name to the Philadelphia Textile Institute, PTI. In 1949, PTI moved to its present site in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, but way up the hill a mile or so from the river. And in 1961, changed its name to Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. The college's student population doubled between 1954 and 1964. It doubled again by 1978, with the addition of programs in the arts, sciences, and business administration. It changed its name again to Philadelphia University on July 13, 1999. And since 2017, it has been part of Thomas Jefferson University. By 1900, Philadelphia was tops in the United States in total value of hosiery, knit goods, carpets and rugs, dyeing and finishing, upholstery materials, and recycled wool. But innovations in both manufacturing techniques and newer textiles started cutting into the Philadelphia market. For instance, in 1911, it was rayon, an artificial silk, which is being produced in Marcus Hook. In Wilmington, Delaware, DuPont developed nylon and orlon in the 1930s and 1940s. 
cheap imports from around the globe cut into Philadelphia's market share, and the industry started to fade in the mid-20th century. By the beginning of the 21st century, there were fewer than 150 textile manufacturers around the city, many of them limited to producing specialty fabrics and goods. Let's take a look at three Philadelphia families who made and sometimes lost their fortunes in the textile business. By 1850, Maniunk had become synonymous with factory textile production in the Philadelphia region. Around 2,000 workers filed daily into the factories from the surrounding neighborhoods, and about one-third of them went to the Ripka Mills on Venice Island. Joseph Ripka was a hard, arrogant, prideful, self-made man whose icy presence dominated Maniunk for a quarter century. Ripka was an immigrant. He was born in Austrian Silesia in 1788 and apprenticed from a farming family to the weaver's trade at age 12. He became a journeyman five years later and worked at his craft until 1807 when he fled to urban Vienna to evade conscription in his hometown. Continuing to avoid the draft, he moved on to Switzerland, then France, and finally Spain before sailing to America sometime before 1816. But along the way, he learned the basics of the silk trade. As a new immigrant in 1816 at age 28, Ripka arrived in Philadelphia with the accomplished handcraftman's traditional skills and operated as a solitary weaver. He started in the silk business, and became quite successful, even traveling to France in 1827 to personally inspect silkworms and their eggs that he would bring home with them. He moved from silk to cotton and quickly acquired four additional looms, and he started hiring men, women, and children to run them. By 1820, he had seven looms staffed by seven men, three women, and three girls. His entire payout for labor was $1,968. That's roughly $150 per year each person, less than $3 a week. He used 10,400 pounds of yarn at 35 cents per pound. A pound of yarn yielded about three yards of cloth at 22 and three quarter cents per yard. So after expenses, Ripka was making roughly $1,400 a year to pay rent, support himself, and add to his capital. And add to his capital he did. He kept acquiring mills and employees. By 1834, Ripka had the largest mill in Maniuk, 300 hands at 224 looms. The combination of rate cutting, powered machinery, and the production and direct sale of both staples and specialty goods allowed Ripka to accumulate reserves sufficient to erect yet another factory in Maniunk around 1835, 
This one was spacious enough to house 600 power looms. Now, this was about the time that a large mob of mill workers from other parts of the area descended on his factory to destroy his mill and machinery, as they were now threatening the livelihood of others throughout the city. The mob was stopped by the local militia, and Ripka acquired two more mills. But during the Panic of 1837, he laid off much of his workforce. Ripka was a harsh taskmaster. His success in capitalism was built on exploiting the poor, and his workers would frequently strike. His worker testified before that 1838 investigating committee that the hours were too long, the work was too hard. Most of the women and children were working 10 to 12 hours daily, six days a week. And when business slacked off, he simply laid off employees. And log hours were only one of the many forms of abuse that employees of Ripka's mills had to endure. Overseers and room bosses monitored mill floors with a sharp eye and did not hesitate to punish those who did not keep pace or meet expected quotas. Ripka levied fines for neglect of work, carelessness, mistreatment of machinery, and poor performance or work badly done. He encouraged promptness by docking every hand coming to work a quarter of an hour after the mill started a quarter of a day's wage. Such reprimands were particularly painful for the textile workers who were already at the bottom of the wage-earning class. In 1850, male spinners, who often earned twice as much as female weavers, for instance, averaged slightly more than $210 a year. This did place them near the bottom of the occupational pyramid. The investigating committee from the Commonwealth chastised Ripka for his methods, and it made no difference. He made no changes. Between 1840 and 1850, he became the largest cotton manufacturer in the United States. He marketed his goods throughout the country, but especially in Texas and the southern states. In 1849-1850, his Maniunk mills used more than one million pounds of raw cotton spinning and dyeing it on site. His output was a single staple, more than three million yards of pantaloon stuffs, whose value was 12 cents a yard. By 1850, Joseph Ripka reported real property of $200,000 with three servants and a coachman in his household. By the early 1850s, Ripka had arranged to pass on his mills to family members. Two of his four sons, Joseph and Albert, were partners, with Andrew soon to follow when he mustered out of the Union Army in 1863 on disability. But Joseph Jr. died at age 29, and when the 1857 panic broke, Ripka was pressed hard by debt, but he did recover. In the 1860 census, he reported 900 looms, 100 carding machines, 21,000 spindles, and 696 workers at his Maniunk mills. Although many manufacturers were concerned with education, temperance, and church building for their workers, their paternalistic gestures stopped short of meeting health and safety requirements of those whose labor added to their daily capital. Residents of Maniunk withstood undrinkable water, poorly constructed roads, and a faulty gas lighting system that often did not provide adequate illumination after dark. 
it was not until the consolidation of 1854 that Maniunk gained these benefits from being part of the city. Newspaper reports from local papers like the Maniunk Star and the Germantown Telegraph detailed the number and types of physical maiming accidents that occurred to factory workers. Most of the injuries were to hands, though scalds from steam leaks and broken bones from tangles and power belts also appeared. Ripka had long depended on the American South for his raw materials and Southern markets for his cotton goods. When the Civil War started, he was forced into bankruptcy. He lost both his sources for cotton and his customers. Joseph Ripka died in January 1864 at age 75 and was buried in Section H of Laurel Hill Cemetery, about midway between General George Meade and Admiral John Dahlgren. General Robert Patterson acquired his mills and his markets. Yeah, but it's my life has been wasted And I've been fooled To let this manufacturer use my body for a tool I'll ride home every evening Staring at my hands Swearing to my sorrow That a young girl understands Seville Schofield was born in 1832 in Lees, near Oldham, England, the third son of a Lancashire textile district family. In his early teens, his parents Joseph and Mally and his siblings immigrated to the United States while his mother was pregnant with a seventh child. They came immediately to Maniunk, where Joseph became a broker to furnish the necessary labor to operate mills for other parties. Seville, along with his four brothers and two sisters, contributed their labor, but their salaries were assumed by Joseph, who was trying to accumulate enough capital to join the ranks of partners and proprietors. After four years as a contractor, Joseph Schofield in 1849 was able to join with James Lees to operate mills on Mill Creek. By 1857, that partnership dissolved and 25-year-old Seville took over the business. His father died later that year and was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section T. Seville, spelled S-E-V-I-L-L, was a very good and a very smart worker. This was noticed by William McFadden, a friend of his father's, who offered him a chance to take over another mill for $10,000. $2,000 to be paid after the first year, with the remainder paid annually over the following nine years. Seville took a chance, and the papers were signed by his father shortly before he died. If Seville did not make the first payment at year's end, the five-story mill reverted to McFadden. Fortunately, his father willed the mill to Seville's mother to stay in her name until 1859. Now, Schofield's tiny operation prospered. He was spinning cotton and carpet yarns with their output bound for the handlooms across the city in Kensington. In two years, Seville's enterprise increased his mother's worth from $800 to $16,000, and he easily met the payments toward ownership of the mill. 
One reason is that he used only one story of the mill. He rented out the other four floors, and he met his financial obligations that way. His tenants were both spinners of carpet and wool yarns. And the company evidently retained all of its earnings, as Schofield took no wages. He lived frugally at home with his mother. But in April 1859, Seville married the girl next door, Miss Kate Somerset, at the First Presbyterian Church. Kate was the daughter of William Somerset, a Scots-Irish Presbyterian immigrant, and a partner in the Maniunk textile firm of Archibald Campbell and Company. At the time of his daughter's marriage to Seville, Somerset owned properties worth more than $60,000. This was at a time when dynastic industrialism was flourishing in Philadelphia. A daughter of a successful businessman would marry an up-and-coming capitalist to keep everything in the family. Somerset had placed a third of his wealth in his wife's name, more as a shelter than as a sign of feminine empowerment. And Seville moved in with his wife's family. As he started working for his father-in-law, he gradually took over his own business from his mother and arranged for her to live comfortably on the interest of her $16,000 principal. He also drew his younger brother Charles into the growing business. The aggressive moves that Seville made over the next few years were showing his new family that he could equal, if not top, what they had already done. Over the next 20 months, he thoroughly reshaped his manufacturing array at the McFadden Mill, as he and his brother labored alongside their six employees working in every department of the mill. They were able to purchase for cash an entire new outfit of machinery, costing $4,000. The business had originally been yarn-based and used two sets of carding and spinning machines. By 1860, they had a capital of $20,000, up $4,000 in one year, with 32 looms, which produced $44,000 worth of jeans, which was a popular cotton and wool blend made from $25,000 of raw material. Their tenants soon moved out, and the Schofield brothers took over their equipment, selling what was redundant. By January 1st, 1861, they occupied the entire building. They paid wages of about $800 a month to their workers, roughly $10,000 a year. But that estimate is probably high because canal repairs shut down all the Maniunk water wheels for several weeks in the winter, and low water was common in August, necessitating cutbacks or closings. Cotton yarn is customarily spun from the baled fresh product. For their cotton-wool mix, the Schofields purchased 48,000 pounds of raw cotton at 12.5 cents a pound for $6,000. Woolen yarn can either be made from newly shorn wool or from shredded rags known as shoddy. The finer grades of yarn demand new wools. Coarser mixes may consist fully or partly of the reprocessed fiber. The price difference is staggering. The Schofields used only rags for the wool portion of their fabrics and carpet yarns. For more than 450,000 pounds of those baled castoffs, their cost was less than four cents a pound. Schofield paid a tenth of what his neighbor David Wallace did for the new wool which went into his jeans, 45 cents a pound as opposed to four cents a pound. 
In addition, the Schofields kept their wool cotton mix at 50-50, where Wallace had only about 12% wool blended into his cotton yarns. The Schofields could even sell their product for a higher price, 20 cents versus 16 cents per yard. By the summer of 1860, they were making large profits, but the election of Abraham Lincoln that fall and the threats of war seemed to sabotage their hopes. The relatively coarse material they made before the war was intended largely for the southern market. This, of course, became wholly suspended during the Civil War, and their source for raw cotton dried up. Mills started closing across the entire region, and by May of 1861, even the local newspaper, the Maniunk Star, saw the end was near as raw materials dried up, so it ceased publishing. But by the fall, the textile industry came roaring back to life, with the exception of Joseph Ripka's mill, which was too heavily dependent on southern suppliers and customers. Philadelphia textilers started looking for wool sources even before all the cotton was gone. The massive cotton enterprises in Lowell dismissed their operatives and sold their stocks into the speculative markets, while Philadelphia mills with mixed goods or wool capacity ran day and night. Cotton rags, shredded and bleached, were recycled and blended with wool or flax for summer consumption and the wearing of wool became a symbol of patriotism throughout the Union. Then came a need for equipping hundreds of thousands of Northern soldiers, a staggering task. By 1862, the Quartermaster Corps, headed by Philadelphian Montgomery Meigs, had routinized its contracting for supplies, uniforms, horses, and other equipment. Meigs solicited bids at St. Louis, New York, Cincinnati, and Philadelphia. The Schuylkill and Frankfurt arsenals expanded dramatically. Millions of yards of blue-dyed army cloth, tons of blankets, mountains of knitted hose, all produced to official specifications, were being sought, and sooner rather than later. S&C Schofield had years of mill experience but had never produced a single blanket. Nonetheless, they plunged into the war supply business and were among the first in Philadelphia to contract with the U.S. government to furnish blankets for the Army. One of the first agreements was concluded on 8 July 1861 with their brother-in-law and fellow woolen manufacturer, John Dobson. Dobson was another English immigrant textile entrepreneur who had married Seville and Charles' older sister, Sarah, in 1855, more dynastic industrialism. He was a partner with his next-door neighbor, James Lees, in a shawl and blanket mill at the southern edge of Maniunk, an area known as Falls of Schuylkill. You will today find Dobson Mill's apartment complex in that location. It's just a few hundred feet from the gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Dobson and Schofield won nine of the 16 direct blanket awards to Maniunk firms, representing two-thirds of the local output, 365,000 out of 555,000 blankets. They enlarged their building in the spring of 1863 and erected a powerful steam engine to help run things, no longer completely dependent on the flow of water. 
Schofield also learned to cut out the middleman. He dealt directly with government representatives rather than with the merchants on Front Street who frequently did the bidding and the dealing. In this way, Schofield and his partners received a staggering $962,500 from the government just in the last two years of the war. By age 29, younger brother Charles Schofield had enough of both work and money. He had multiplied his wealth tenfold in three years and declared himself, quote, sufficiently opulent, end quote. He sold his share in the partnership for $40,000, and he settled down on a comfortable income of between two dollars and $3,000 per year. Now, with Joseph Ripka out of the picture, Seville was now master of the mills. He was not yet 35 years old. With his newfound wealth, he built yet a bigger factory. This one five stories and 70 by 120 feet. The newly named Economy Mill was outfitted with imported machinery, but it burnt to the ground on 26 March 1867 before he could produce a single foot of product. Schofield earlier had a dispute with his insurers, and his policies had been canceled the same day as the fire. His loss was estimated at $225,000 and was unrecoverable. But without a second thought, he headed back to England for new equipment, while yet another new mill was built, this one 70 by 240 feet. It is part of this building you now see when you walk or bike the Maniunk Towpath Trail north of downtown Maniunk. Schofield's ties with Dobson Mills got even stronger. John Dobson's younger brother, James, married Schofield's younger sister, Mary Ann, and Seville named his second son, Dobson Schofield. He eventually entered the business. By 1870, he had a hundred new looms along with all the equipment needed to process the raw materials. The Schofield Mills could now process 3,000 pounds of carded wool daily and employed more than 300 workers, 165 men, 112 women, and 37 boys and girls. But the market was changing. In 1860, wages had represented 16% and materials 41% of total product value. Ten years later, wages constituted 24% and materials 67% of each dollar output, leaving a slender 9% for insurance, equipment, and profit. The Morrill Tariff of 1861 had helped some, encouraging people to buy cheaper domestic products and fostering wage increases for industrial workers. The Depression of 1873 hit the textile markets hard. Credit tightened, demand and market prices for materials dropped. Mill owners started cutting workers' salaries, and workers started striking. Schofield was one of the last to give in, but finally he had to face his workers and explain the need to cut their wages by 10 to 15 percent. Many men had gone on strike, and they demanded they get the same wages they had before. Schofield sighed, stood, thanked the workers who had stood with him during this crisis, and explained quietly that would not be possible. He then shuttered his mills, putting hundreds of people out of work. Then when the tariffs were lifted in the early 1880s, foreign goods flooded the market, 
undercutting the American textile industry. Schofield was one of the first to reopen when the situation improved, but he never regained the power he had during his heyday of 1850 to the mid-1870s. In an effort to restore good faith with his remaining workers in 1885, he increased their wages 5% across the board without being asked. But following the financial crash of 1893, Seville Schofield suffered severe further financial embarrassments. His mills were taken over by his brother-in-law, James Dobson. Seville Schofield died of heart disease on 21 December 1900. He was 68 years old. He left his wife, six children, two brothers, and a sister. He is buried in Section T, Laurel Hill Cemetery. He has a simple stone upon which his first name is misspelled. And may I work this mill just as long as I am able and never meet the man whose name is on the label. It's me and my machine for the rest of the morning. For the rest of the afternoon gone And the rest of my In many ways, the family of Samuel Winpenny was very much like that of Seville Schofield, only it started a generation earlier. The Winpenny Patriarch was born in 1777 in the area around Leeds in Yorkshire, and he came from a long line of wool workers. He arrived in America in December 1806. He spent a few years in North Carolina studying the cotton gin before he moved to Philadelphia and purchased his first mill in 1808. Around 1798, he had married Ellen Bolton, daughter of James Bolton, an artist and a member of the Royal Academy of Edinburgh. In 1810, Ellen and her two young sons, John and Samuel Jr., arrived in Philadelphia from the port of Liverpool. Three additional sons were born in this country, William, Joseph, and James B. Some of the sons married and had sons of their own who joined the business. And from 1808 to 1884, three generations of windpennies produced woolen goods along the Schuylkill River. Unlike many immigrants in the textile trade, Samuel, the patriarch, had only a few good years. His goods were initially protected by President Jefferson's embargo of 1807 and business boomed during the War of 1812 when Samuel filled contracts for blankets and woolen cloth with the U.S. quartermaster. But the federal tariff of 1816 was too mild and Samuel's business dried up. He was bankrupt by 1818 at age 41 and he died at age 52, leaving his widow to open a small retail shop in order to sustain herself. But some of Samuel's sons did better. Now the similarity in names among the generations is thought to have confused local bankers. And at various times, James Bolton Winpenny, John B. Winpenny, and J.B. Winpenny were buying and selling mills. 
John and Samuel Jr. teamed up as partners in the 1830s to make blankets, blue cloths, and kerseys for the federal government. With John as the expert on woolen goods and Samuel Jr. as an expert in the highly specialized field of blue dyeing. A very difficult job when you're dealing with thousands of items that have to look exactly alike. In 1854, John was awarded a government contract for 30,000 yards of sky blue indigo dyed twilled woolen cloth at $1.35 per yard, followed by another contract for 10,000 gray woolen army blankets measuring 5 by 7 feet at $2.48 per blanket. This connection with the quartermaster would pay huge dividends during the Civil War. Along the way, John married Esther Marshall and produced a third generation of windpennies, including J. Bolton Windpenny in 1838. John and Samuel's youngest brother, James, manufactured cotton warps in Manioc. Someone else made the Wests as early as the mid-1840s, but the Panic of 1857 hit him hard, and by December of that year, his property was sold off in a sheriff's sale. But he bounced back. He even managed to survive the Panic of 1873. By 1871, he was president of the Manufacturer's Mutual Fire Insurance Company. He was a lifelong bachelor, although that was apparently not his intent. On his death, his acquaintances told of a deep attachment he had to a young Quakerist teacher in the neighborhood for whom he actually built a large house in anticipation of marriage. But one day he gave permission to a German society to have a picnic on his grounds. And while watching them have fun, he decided to enter into the spirit of the occasion and imbibed several glasses of beer. When his young lady heard of this, she was so shocked at the impropriety that she immediately annulled the engagement. In place of raising children, James raised horses. In early June of 1882, James went to visit a fellow horse breeder in Chestnut Hill and sent his driver home. But something changed during the night, and James walked back home the four miles to Maniunk before dawn. In the morning, he went to the woodshed, suspended a rope from a crossbeam, mounted a wood horse, and jumped off. His body was found by a servant. He was 64 years old at his death, and his estimated worth was $120,000, which was distributed mostly among his nephews, as he left no will. Now, of the third generation, John and Esther's son, J. Bolton Winpenny, born in 1838, seemed in the best position to take over the family mills. John Sr. considered John Jr. worthless, he even cut him out of the will unless he changed his ways, in which case he could be given $200 a year. That's at a time when a skilled laborer could make about $300 a year. Son Joseph did not generate any strong feelings from his father and had been a failure in the dry goods business. But in his will, John forgave Joseph's debts and left him $500. At age 18, Jay Bolton was the fair-haired boy. His father's will provided him with a loan of $5,000 at 6% interest, and he used it to invest wisely. This third-generation Winpenny was continuing the dynasty, and he used his connections with Quartermaster Montgomery Meigs to again snare contracts throughout the Civil War. 
1872, J. Bolton Winpenny sold his mills and moved to a mansion at 1432 North Broad Street, roughly Broad and Girard, where he entered the society of other new money manufacturers of the day. There was an early marriage about which I could find nothing. He took some of his money and invested in the Arch Street Opera House. It was about this time that he married Lucy Sutton, and they had two daughters, Lucy and Laura. But his wife Lucy died in 1880. She was 33 years old. The girls were not yet teenagers. He decided to memorialize her in his family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. There are three Winpenny plots in the cemetery. But this was in the relatively new central section, which was becoming a sea of obelisks. The 40-foot-high monument to Lucy included her likeness at the top in the personage of the biblical Ruth. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Today, Lucy's statue, which is carved of Italian marble by Philadelphian Thomas Delahunty, is often mistaken as the third in a trilogy of angels atop high columns on one of the high points of the cemetery. Anybody wandering central Laurel Hill cannot miss it. In October 1882, in Jackson, Michigan, J. Bolton Winperry married a third time, this time to Susan Gertrude Shoemaker, and they had more children the fourth generation of Winpennies. They even made the 1883-84 Philadelphia Blue Book of Society. But things were not so easy on North Broad Street. Susan actually left Bolton at least once in fear of her own safety due to his anger and other displays of temper. His investment, however, in the 1,000-seat theater on Arch Street had proven profitable, even though its name and its usage kept shifting. It was set on fire several times, yet it kept rising from the ashes. Designed by architect Edwin Forrest Durang, it became the Park Theater in 1879, the new Arch Street Opera House in 1884, the Continental Theater in 1889, the Gaiety Theater in 1890, and the Casino Palace Theater in 1892, at which point it started slowly changing into a burlesque theater. By 1908, it was being referred to as the Trocadero Theater. It was in this year that J. Bolton Winpenny was accosted in front of the theater by a man with a gun demanding money that he claimed was owed to him by Winpenny, who escaped injury. The Troc gradually evolved into a strip club and eventually into a dance hall and concert venue, featuring alternative, indie rock, heavy metal, punk rock, jam, industrial, gothic, electronic music. It was a place where even the walls sweat. The Trocadero was added to the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places in 1973 and to the National Register of Historic Places five years later. Other than J. Bolton Winpenny, it has at least one other Laurel Hill Cemetery connection. In 1994, the Philadelphia group The Dead Milkmen recorded their album Chaos Rules live at the Trocadero. The Milkmen have become friends of Laurel Hill Cemetery, and every two years or so, they perform a live concert in front of the receiving vault in the south section of the cemetery 
to an enthusiastic crowd that sells out weeks in advance. Sadly, the truck closed in 2019. There's a saying in Philadelphia that first generation makes the money, the second generation marries the money and gets the professional degrees, law, medicine, business, while the third generation spends and wastes the money. The Winpenny slightly rewrote the rules since the first generation, Samuel, went bankrupt. But then the second and third generations made the money. It was the fourth generation, for the most part, that became wastrels. Jay Bolton Winpenny's children had a privileged existence and a multitude of chances, and with one exception, they blew it. The eldest son was the exception, Marshall Shoemaker Winpenny. Born in 1884, he went to William Penn Charter School. He graduated from Harvard in 1908, received his LLB in 1911, and was admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar the next year. He was working at a Philadelphia law firm in 1916 when his mother Susan was caught up in an extortion scandal. She was approached by someone identifying himself as a member of the Secret Service, saying that Marshall had been nabbed violating the 1910 Mann Act, transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. It was the same act that tried to take down Jack Johnson, Frank Lloyd Wright, Charlie Chaplin, Chuck Berry. But the agent said for an $8,000 fee, he could make those charges go away. Susan refused. And the so-called agent lowered the amount, so she became a little more suspicious. She reported the event to authorities and was one of the main witnesses, although she unfortunately died a few months later at age 58. Some say because of the stress of this attempted extortion. The blackmailers were eventually convicted. After war broke out, Marshall joined the American Red Cross in France in 1918. Less than two weeks before sailing for Europe in August, he married Anna Baldwin Gilpin of an old Philadelphia family. Although the engagement was only announced two weeks before the wedding, Marshall had been quietly building a house for them in Marion. But only a few months after arriving in Paris, Marshall contracted pneumonia, probably due to the Spanish flu, and rapidly deteriorated. He died within a few days on October 21st. He was initially buried in France, but reinterred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in December of that year. He was 34 years old. His young bride, Anna, an avid horsewoman, lived quietly in the Marion home he had built for them, but she too took seriously ill in late July 1920, and she died in a matter of days. She was 30 years old. She is also buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Two more fourth-generation Winpennies deserve mention. J. Harold Winpenny, born in 1883, was one of the fourth generation living on the family dole. In July 1908, he shocked Philadelphia society by announcing that the prior November he had married Miss Beatrice Riley, quote, a beautiful model who was known to scores of artists in this city, end quote. That is a coded way of saying that she took off her clothes for money and posed for people. Miss Riley had also played in the chorus of a light comedy called A Japanese Honeymoon at the Walnut Street Theater. Jay Harold had previously been engaged to marry Miss Inez Sprigg, granddaughter of former Governor William Sprigg IV 
of Rhode Island and great-granddaughter of Supreme Court Justice Salmon P. Chase, whose picture appears on the $10,000 bill. Inez ended up marrying the son of one of Governor Sprigg's old enemies. This angered Sprigg so much that he sold his estate, disinherited Inez, and moved to Paris. J. Harold and Beatrice stayed married for nearly 15 years, and they divorced in 1923. Beatrice remarried two days after their divorce was final, and J. Harold announced his engagement to Esther Crawford Medford less than a week later. J. Harold died in 1961, and he is buried in the family plot. The final Winpenny I want to mention is not buried in the family plot. In fact, I don't know where he's buried. His name is Bolton Sutton Winpenny, born about 1869. I'm going to quote directly from a newspaper article dated June 29, 1912. Dateline, New York. Bolton S. Winpenny, member of a prominent Philadelphia family who lived in Yonkers for about 15 years under the name of David Nally, has been unmasked by his wife Gertrude, who had not seen or heard from him since he left her about 16 years ago. She caused his arrest on a charge of abandonment, end quote. It's a long story. The couple eloped in 1896 when she was 18 and he was 27. His father, Jay Bolton, disowned him. He never went back home to the house on Broad Street. But after they arrived in New York City, he abandoned his wife and adopted a new name and made a living by tuning and selling pianos. Gertrude searched for him for years, taking time in 1897 to sue her father-in-law for $50,000, saying that he had caused an alienation of affection between the couple by failing to sanction the marriage. When Gertrude found out where her husband was, she entered the piano shop and confronted him with, Well, Bolton Winpenny, how do you find yourself now? I assume he found himself embarrassed. After Bolton S. was discovered, he agreed to pay a $15 stipend to Gertrude until he could prove that she was not entitled to his support. He then hired a female private eye to keep tabs on Gertrude. The detective became a boarder of Gertrude's and discovered her with a Walter McClelland. Bolton S. immediately filed for divorce in March 1913. Gertrude publicly denied the allegations but didn't put up any real legal fight and she never even showed up in court. And Bolton S. was granted an absolute divorce in April 1913. The newspaper article reporting this was kind enough to point out that Bolton's younger brother, Jay Harold, had secretly married a photographer's model five years earlier. As of the 1940 census, Bolton Winpenny, age 71, was living in Yonkers. The family historian Thomas R. Winpenny wrote in 2001, Some estimates suggest the estate that Jay Bolton left was worth $1,600,000. His will, dated May 1st, 1909, named his wife and sons Marshall and Bruce as executors. Wife Susan inherited 1432 North Broad, the furniture, the books, paintings, horses, and carriages. She was also to receive one-third of the balance of the estate and one-third of a trust to distribute the remainder of the wealth to the children. Son Bolton Sutton, the source of scandal and embarrassment, was to receive $60 per week for the rest of his life. 
The remaining five children were to carve up the rest to be paid quarterly. A cache of letters exchanged by his widow and children shortly after Jay Bolton's death. The stationery was boarded in black, painted a picture of five of the six children, the fourth generation, as people who generally tried to fill idle time and live off family money. Marshall had been the exception, but he had died in France. They liked to travel, and they complained a lot about aches and pains. Readers of these letters learn of their fear of lightning, the pain of rheumatism, the expensive pew rental at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, and the fact that Lucy's, quote, monument is dirty and will be expensive to clean, end quote. In brief, the story of Jay Bolton's kids, or the fourth generation, as portrayed in the cache of letters, was a bit sad. Almost depressing, says the biographer. And remember, then it's me and my machine for the rest of the morning and the rest of the afternoon and the rest of my life. As you know, the pandemic continues, and the Cemetery Museum at the Gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery will not reopen this calendar year. You can still honor the centenary of the 19th Amendment with us virtually, though. The exhibit, and it's a good one, it's called Their Legacies, the Women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. It celebrates achievements of 16 women buried in both cemeteries. It's just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I have talked about several of these women in prior podcasts. Go to thelaurelhillcemetery.org and click on the Visit drop-down menu. Scroll down to Online Exhibit and get your own PDF copy of the exhibit. It's free. But donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time, in the January 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's the birds and the bees. John Casson was a Philadelphia ornithologist who, during his long career, described 194 new species of birds, and five species of North American birds are named in his honor. Whitmer Stone was another Philadelphia ornithologist who spent 51 years at the Academy of Natural Sciences and increased their bird collection fivefold to more than 140,000 specimens. John Lawrence LeConte was an American entomologist responsible for naming and describing approximately half of the insect taxa known in the United States during his lifetime, including some 5,000 species of beetles. And Titian Peel, son of famed painter Charles Wilson Peel, was all of the above, an ornithologist, entomologist, photographer, and explorer whose paintings are considered some of the finest examples of nature painting in the 19th century. As a bonus, which came first, the bird or the egg? 
J. Parker Norris Sr. was a famed Shakespearean scholar of the 19th century. His son, J. Parker Norris Jr., was one of the founders of the Ball Mask, Philadelphia's high society's get-together to end the social season every year. But both of them collected eggs. Their collection of bird eggs became one of the largest in the United States. That's all next month in All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, The Birds and the Bees. Cemetery and is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October. Now we're open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. As I record this, I am unsure whether we're still doing live tours. There's been another declaration of limited activity by the governor of Pennsylvania until January 1st. Check out the website to see if there are any live tours. We definitely have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. LaurelHillCemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview and all bones considered laurel hill stories is a video podcast i did on illustrator ab frost and his family once you've fallen in love with these hot spots become a friend of laurel hill and west laurel hill cemeteries and you will have the opportunity for several members only special tours conducted each year they may be cemeteries but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town I'm Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear the references I used for this show. I have never done a master's thesis, but 
now I know what it feels like investigating people and places and things for this show probably took between 80 and 100 hours of my life. And I want to share with you some of the references because they are excellent. There's a lot written about this. Anyone with an interest in the Philadelphia textile industry needs a copy of Proprietary Capitalism, the textile manufacturer at Philadelphia, 1800 to 1885. It was written by Philip Scranton, Cambridge University Press, 1983. It had material on all of my subjects and dozens more. Now, for more detail on the industry itself, check out The Role of Labor in Early Industrialization, Philadelphia, 1783 to 1837. That's by Cynthia Shelton. That's from the Journal of the Early Republic, Volume 4, Number 4, Winter, 1984, pages 365 to 394. The sound of these looms may be heard at all hours. Textile Manufacturing Work and Reform, Philadelphia County, 1788 to 1854. That's by Derek T. Lan. It's a dissertation for partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Doctor of Philosophy in History in the Graduate School of Binghamton University, State University of New York, 2017. And then there are two websites... I recommend, or actually one website, it's philadelphiaencyclopedia.org, but there are two articles. One is Garment Work and Workers by Christina Loracco, and Textile Manufacturing and Textile Workers by Jack McCarthy. Both of those are copyrighted 2018. Again, that's philadelphiaencyclopedia.org. Now, for Joseph Ripka, I found an article called Maniunk as a Historic District. It is by Mary Jo Rendon, University of Pennsylvania, Graduate Thesis in Historic Preservation. That's from 1987. For Seville Schofield, an excellent article on Immigrant Family and Industrial Enterprise. Seville Schofield and the Philadelphia Textile Manufacturer, 1845 to 1900 by Philip Scranton. Uh, the Philadelphia Magazine of History and Biography, Volume 106, Number 3, July 1982, pages 365 to 392. Finally, for the Winpennies, there is the Winpennies of Maniunk, an alternative approach in the burgeoning 19th century American textile industry that's written by Thomas R. Winpenny. It's available free online from Essays in Economic and Business History, Volume 19, Number 1, 2001, pages 235 to 243. And a special shout-out to Laurel Hill Cemetery Weekend Supervisor David Germay for the additional information he found on the fourth-generation black sheep, Bolton Sutton Winpenny. It did help me complete the story. I'm Joe Lex. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.